Well, good morning. Glad that you uh, survived the apocalyptic flood of 2014. Um, we uh, certainly uh, are sorry about those of you who had some serious damage and have been spending all weeks in your basement and all sorts of other challenges with uh, insurance companies. So I don't want to uh, to take what happened this week lightly, but um, in terms of the bigger picture, we're grateful that, that God is still in control of all these things, and He knew that this was coming before it came, and uh, certainly we can count on Him to carry us through all the way till the end. All right, let's begin with a word of prayer, and then we'll get into our study this morning. Father, we are grateful for Your mercy. We pray for those who are uh, struggling with just lo- the loss of, of a great deal of possessions and dealing with insurance companies and and um, remodeling and all sorts of other challenges. Think of Clayton and Sarah, particularly, who were hit hard with this flood and and uh, certainly many others in our church as well. And We just pray for Your mercy upon them, and we pray that You would help them to find comfort in knowing that You are in control of all things and that You love them and that You are with them. We pray for us this hour as we reflect on uh, this final session, as we uh, think about how to to help other believers grow in their faith, and and we pray specifically as we think about the topic of depression that we would uh, think about it according to your word. We pray in Jesus' name, Amen. Well, we come to the last week in our study of biblical counseling. That is. Uh, people in need of change helping other people in need of change. That's what biblical counseling is all about. And really, that's the great value of the local church. It is um, a, a group of people who recognize their frailty. They recognize that they are sinners and that they're willing to, to um, receive correction and help others who, who need to change as well. And so that's what this session, this, this 13-week class has been all about. And I hope that you have been edified and challenged as we've considered how to biblically care for those around us. And I hope that you come away from this class a little better equipped to help other people. And I hope that you come away with a little more willingness to get involved in people's lives, even when it's messy. Uh, because, frankly, when we deal with our, ourselves and with others, uh, we are dealing with sinners. And sin, sin brings about a great deal of mess. And uh, so we need to be willing to, to work with people in that way. So today our topic um, is, is wanting to focus in on the, the idea of depression, people who struggle with depression. And we'll begin with a brief introduction to depression, and then we'll, we'll spend most of our talk, time talking about our fourfold framework of how to deal with people who need to change. And and can you help me with what that is? It is love. What were the other three? See if anybody was here. Love, know, speak, and do. Okay, so we're gonna we're gonna use depression really as a test case. So someone dealing with depression, we're going to use that as a, as a test case. How do we handle that sort of situation by using our four, fourfold framework that we believe is is from the scriptures? And uh, in this way, we we want to be able to basically apply what we've learned these previous 12 weeks. Now, this is not going to be a comprehensive study on depression. If you want something more in-depth, Ed Welch is a Christian counselor, and he writes excellent books, and his one on depression here is listed for you, Stubborn Darkness. 
but it helps to start with a, with a definition. So um, depression is a sorrow that causes a person to turn inwards. What are the two greatest commandments, according to Jesus? What are the two greatest commandments? What is it? Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. So we have a, a upward... Looking uh, an upward look, that is, we love God, and then an outward look, that we love other people. But what depression does is it turns us inward, and we start looking at ourselves more than we we should, and and um, instead of looking at God and and at others. And so, um, this struggle pulls us away from what we are called to do as believers, which is to love God and love other people. There are two ways that we can describe depression. Um, and maybe if you picture it on a continuum, a line, we could put situational de- depression on one end and then dispositional depression on the other. Situational depression is very uh, maybe self-obvious, but, but it is where a person experiences a frustrating or disappointing or discouraging event based on a situation that comes into their life. And as a result, they... they um, you know, they, they fall into deep despair, maybe like getting a bad grade on an important school paper or, or having their basement flood, uh, something like that. And this kind of depression, the circumstances will eventually pass, right? Eventually those circumstances will go away and you'll move beyond that and, and the depression too will pass. And so that's one end of the spectrum. Uh, and there are ways to deal with this. Uh, when I was in school, my threefold prescription for situational depression was ice cream, pizza, and sleep. Okay? So you gotta you gotta make sure you have those three and then you can work to deal with, with those. Uh, maybe for some of you ladies it's the, your threefold prescription is chocolate, chocolate, and chocolate, right? So um, but then on the other end of the spectrum is of the spectrum is, is more uh, it's more serious, much more serious. That is dispositional depression. That is a person is has a, a disposition toward depression. They have a propensity for sorrow. You know, no matter what stage of life they're in, they tend to struggle with discouragement. Uh, I don't know if you know people like this, but but they just tend to always be down. They're, they're, they see the glasses half-empty type of people, and it doesn't seem to help no matter what you, you say to them. And those tend to be more dispositional uh, in, in their view of, of life. So the point is, is that those who struggle with depression are going to fall somewhere on, along that line. Either it's because of a situation or it's because they're, they're, uh, they're, just, they're uh, made up that way. And, uh, and so based on that, uh, as circumstances come into life, it will determine where that person falls on the line. All right, what does the depression look like? I'm not going to get into this in very much detail. Uh, there's no one form of depression that we can just say everybody who has depression looks like this. Instead, there are all sorts of symptoms that show up in life and and um, and they're listed for you there. And what you need to know also is that women are four times more often plagued by depression than men. Um, so 75% to 25%. Well, that doesn't work out, does it? I don't know. But anyway, they're more... <laughs> 20 to 80, I guess it would be. All right. Um, so any questions on, on this introduction so far? We're going to 
Let's turn to 1 Kings chapter 19 because we want to see how how God deals with people who are depressed. There are two significant passages that we need to understand, I believe, if we're going to help someone. And uh, we'll look at one of them now and the other as we're kind of working through our test case. Okay, this is 1 Kings chapter 9. Someone, I'm sorry, 1 Kings chapter 19. So if someone comes to you and they are a depressed person, maybe they're not coming to ask for help specifically. Maybe they're just coming to talk to you and you recognize that they are completely distressed. Okay, What ought your disposition be toward them? If they come to you as distressed, what ought your disposition be toward them? And I think the simple answer is one of mercy. You ought to come back at them with, with just loads of mercy. Now, sin certainly is a part of a person's life because we all are sinners. And our sin can actually aggravate our depression. And so, if, if we, as the, the one who's seeking to help this person, come in and just point out all their sin, okay? Let me show you where all your problems are. And we don't show mercy, then we're actually probably going to, to make the situation worse rather than help them. And so, yes, we do want to deal with sin and sin patterns that we see in this person's life, if, if that is contributing to it. But, but the, the main thing that we need to do is when we come to them, we don't rush in and focus on their sin. Uh, instead, we, we come to them with a great deal of mercy so that we can get to a point, point where we can talk about their sin. Notice what happens here in 1 Kings Chapter 9, Elijah is here, and he's just had this great victory. What just happened at Mount Carmel? Can someone tell me? Right. Okay, so there's this competition on on, on Mount Carmel. And it was the priest of Baal versus versus, uh, Elijah and his God. And the, the, the challenge was, whose God is the real God? Is it Baal or is it God? And so the priest of Baal worked all day long, they were trying to build a fire. They built an altar, and they put all this kindling on it, and they were trying to see if their god, Baal, could bring them a fire. And nothing happened. They tried cutting themselves. They did everything they could to try to call out to their god, and nothing happened. Then Elijah comes over, and he builds his altar, and he pours water on it, and he builds a trench around the outside, fills that whole thing up with water. And even though they were working all day calling on their god, got nothing. First time Elijah calls out to God, he prays and says, God, send the fire. Show that you are the true and living God. And it just licks up all of the water. The the fire just consumes the altar. And he was shown not to be a better person, but to have a better God, to have the true and living God. And so immediately after this, he he prays for rain. Rain starts to come because there's been a famine. And he heads down the mountain. And now notice what happens in chapter 19, verse 1. Now Ahab told Jezebel, Ahab's the king of Israel at the time, and Jezebel is his wife. She's the queen. Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. And then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, So may the gods do to me and even more if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by tomorrow about this time. Uh, I'm sorry. uh, Yeah, if I do not make your life as the life of one of them. In other words, I'm going to make you like them. What what are they like right now? They're dead, right? So I'm going to kill you. 
that's what Queen Jezebel is doing. This is the queen of Israel, and she's a very godless woman, obviously, because she's trying to kill the prophet of God. So she's basically making a commitment. I am going to kill Elijah. And notice what he does, verse 3. And he was afraid and arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a juniper tree. And he requested for himself that he might die and said, It is enough now. Uh, It is enough. Now, O Lord, take my life, for I am not better than my father's. He lay down and slept under the juniper tree. And behold, there was an angel touching him. And he said to him, Arise and eat. So, not too long after this victory on Mount Carmel, Elijah falls into a great state of despair because he sees that he's going to be running for his life and that very well his life could end at the hands of Queen Jezebel. Notice how the Lord responded to Elijah's prayer. This is what we want to think about when it comes to someone who is just completely distressed. Unlike in other passages of scriptures, did God charge in and say, Elijah, you're not trusting me. Did you not see what happened on the mountain? God doesn't do that. Instead, he sends an angel to minister to him. And then verse 6, Then he looked, and behold, there was at the head a bread cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. So he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise, eat, because the journey is too great for you. So he arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food forty days and forty nights to Horeb, the mountain of God. So notice what God does to him. He, he comes to him with a disposition of mercy, right? The angel comes and touches him. The angel comes with food. The angel allows him to sleep. By the way, these are some things that are very important. We'll talk about here later. Uh, when you're dealing with someone with depression, they're often sleep-deprived uh, many times, and, and often they're not eating. And so have a meal with them. Okay? Get, make sure that they're well-rested and uh, come to them with a disposition of mercy. Sometimes when uh, a person has a spouse who is depressed, they deal with them in in various ways. Sometimes they try to ignore the depression of their spouse. Other times they try to manage it. They try to fix it. They try to figure out what's what's wrong. They try to control the person. They try to point out the sin. But, but my plea to you is when you care for a depressed person, start with mercy. Start with mercy. All right, any questions or comments so far? All right, so now what we want to do is look at a case study. Oh, Greg, go ahead. Um, mercy is... Um, anyone want to help Greg with that one? <laughs> Vicki? Yeah, maybe, maybe, uh, yeah, that's that's helpful. May- Jared? Okay. Okay, good. Okay, good. Yeah, and, and there's a text description, I can't think of where it's from, but mercy triumphs over judgment showing that those are two mutually exclusive things. You, you have mercy 
um, triumphing over judgment. So yes, it's a withholding of judgment. So in other words, I can come to that person, the depressed person, and say, you deserve to be judged for, for, for what's going on right now. You know, I'm, I'm looking at the sin that, that I see in your life, and that needs to change. But instead, I'm coming and saying, I'm not going to treat you as your sins deserve, you know, similar to how God treats us. He doesn't treat us as our sins deserve. So that's good. Thank you. Vicki. Yes, absolutely. Yep. In fact, um, you know, in Hebrews it says that we have a merciful and faithful high priest. And why is that? It's because he's been made like us to be able to suffer in every way like we are except without sin. So, so yeah, so he's compassionate. He recognizes. He knows what you're going through. He, so that's the kind of thing that you want to come to that person with. All right. We want to move to a case study. We want to see if we can just take an example of a person... Uh, who's going through just a fictitious person uh, named Keith, who is a salesman. Keith's been a salesman for the last 24 years and has made a decent living off of selling home furnishings and appliances from his store, uh, Better Buy, right now. Uh, has been a staple in the small community in West Oklahoma, and yet difficult economic times have hit hard, and Keith feels the pinch uh, in the wallet as store sales continue to decline. And he says, I'm, you know, I'm a bit distressed about how my business is going to survive in such difficult economic times. He's also over the years struggled with depression on and off for about 10 years. There always seems to be a low-grade depression hovering in the background. So do you kind of see this dispositional? He's kind of got the dispositional depression along with the situational, right? He, he's got a situation that's kind of affecting him right now. It never goes away, even when I'm doing well, he says. With fewer sales, his stores continue to lose money. Everyone is in a tight spot now. I've got a kid in college, two more at home, and I'm certainly scared about the future. He goes on, I'm scared that my depression is getting worse. He's been getting to work later and later in the mornings. He has a hard time getting out of bed. He says, I wake up, realize that I just don't want to face the day, so I go back to sleep. His wife is concerned because... He has also had a loss of appetite. He's always eaten well, but he hasn't eaten much in the last few weeks. I also noticed that he stopped exercising. Keith and his wife, Barbara, are both involved in church, and they both attend regularly and have good relationships with other members. And so now they come to you for help. Okay? So let's begin with our fourfold framework. It is love, know, speak, do. Let's begin with the first one, which is love. All right, love. What are some entry gates into Keith's life? What what kind of things need do we need to recognize if we're going to come to him with a disposition of love and as we talked about mercy? Okay, just from his story, what what do we need to know? Okay, and it's things that you just read. Okay, so he's afraid. He's got some difficult economic times that have hit him hard. And, and we need to, to recognize that, that we need to come with him in love. And part of our responsibility as people in need of change, helping others and people in need of change, is that we need to show the love of Christ to him. That is, that as ambassadors of Christ, we're not only called to speak the truth to him, which he does need to hear truth, but we also need to show it. We need to illustrate it for Him. Because God changes people not just through what we say, but with 
our character, with who we are and what we do. And, of course, one of the greatest problems with a depressed person is, remember, they're, they're always looking inward, and so they tend to be isolated. And so we need to recognize, help him to recognize that he is not alone in his depression. That, that he needs to remember his loving family and his loving church and, most importantly, his loving God. And so your presence in Keith's life can make a tremendous difference that just being there is a helpful thing because then he recognizes that he's not alone and that, it, you know, I, I may have some things in the future that I can't face, but I've got these people with me that are planning to walk through the difficult times with them. And they also need someone who can model faith for them. We'll talk about that, this here in just a second, but, but um, we need someone that can model faith because when we're depressed, we, we forget what it looks like to, to live a faith-filled life. We also need a listening ear, and so it's just helpful for us to, to be there. All right, and then uh, the next part of the love aspect is, is to identify with suffering. We talked about this when we were going through the, those two weeks on love. Um, we need to, to acknowledge that the pain and suffering are real. Don't just say, well, this is just a imagined thing. You know, you're just imagining that things are, are worse than they really are. No, this is a real challenge that he is facing. And so help him to help him to see that you know that these struggles are real. Uh, listen, let him know that, that you are hearing him. Now turn to Psalm 42 because... We want to remind him. I want to remind Keith that um, he needs to have his eyes fixed on God through this time. And this starts to move toward the speak aspect, but but we want to remind him that God has good purposes in suffering. This is part of loving a person. It's to remind them that God has good purposes in suffering. And so we need to help him to get his eyes fixed on God and not on himself. Do you realize that there are a number of believers that we have record of in the Scripture who are depressed? We have Elijah that we just looked at. Moses in Numbers chapter 11 was so frustrated with the people of God that he was ready to give up. Job, of course, Job chapter 3 said, I wish I would never have been born when he lost his family and all his possessions and his health. And Jeremiah, in Jeremiah chapter 20, of course, Jonah. And so we have all these people that, that have gone through difficult times. And, and I think, um, I think uh, the psalmist here had the same sort of situation here in Psalm 42. Notice what he says here in, in verse 5. He's talking to himself. And he's trying to get his focus in the right place. But notice what he says. Why are you in despair, O my soul? And why have you become disturbed within me? You see what he's saying to himself? Why, why are you so distressed? Why so depressed with life? Notice his remedy in the second part of verse 5. Hope in God. So he's still talking to himself. Hope in God, for I shall again praise Him for the help of His presence. And then notice he says the same thing in verse 11, which tells you that that he is seriously struggling with this. Why are you in despair, O my soul, and why have you become disturbed within me? 
And he tells himself again, hope in God, for I shall yet praise him, the help of my countenance. And I actually believe that 43, Psalm number 43 goes along with Psalm 42 because notice verse 5 of Psalm 43. Why are you in despair, O my soul? And why are you disturbed within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, the help of my countenance and my God. We want to remind Keith that that he needs to have his eyes fixed on God, that God has good purposes, that God is there for him. One of the most helpful things that a believer can know, if not the most helpful, is that God is with them, that God has not abandoned him. And so remind him of the people in Scripture who have struggled with depression and remind him that, that he needs to hope in God. All right, so there's the first aspect of love. We just want to come alongside him, rec- help him to recognize that we are we want to show mercy to him. We just want to pour out mercy to him, and we w- we want to be there for him and listen to him, and uh, recognize that will that we will help him, and that even if all others abandon him, God will be with him to the end. Any questions on that first aspect? All right. Well, the next aspect is no. Okay, we want to know what's going on. We don't want to just assume, okay, we understand all the circumstances. Yeah, yeah, depression, it's all the same. We'll start working on it. No, we want to know what's going on. And so we've used five questions before to help understand properly. If we're going to help him, if we're going to speak to what needs to change, then we need to understand without assuming what's going on. And so we've used these five questions. First, what is going on? So I have these for you and... I, yes, I do. Okay, so situation, what is going on? It's just a basic question, and we want to find out basic facts about what's happening. Okay, so, so recognize that he's had this low-grade depression. Recognize that he now has some circumstances in life that are contributing to a deeper depression. Things are getting worse. Okay, but what about his responses? How does Keith respond to what is going on? Okay, based on what we looked at before, how does he respond to these difficult economic times? What are some things? What's that? Okay, he has trouble getting up. He's not eating well. Not exercising, not sleeping. Okay, yeah, so he's given up. So there's some, there's some things that will help us that, that we're not just guessing how he responds, right? We're actually asking him. Okay, what are some other things that are going on in your life? We're asking his wife, potentially. You know, what are the things that are going on? He doesn't seem like he's willing to face life, life's challenges. Instead of saying, here's my struggle, now I'm going to go see if I can attack it with the help of God's grace. Instead, he's saying, I can't handle that. And so he, he kind of pulls away. What about thoughts? What does the person, what does Keith think about what is going on? How does he describe his depression? Okay, he's scared about the, the future, right? Anything else? Okay, yeah, he says that I think my depression is getting worse. So those are the two main things that he thinks about what is going on, at least the ones that he's described. And perhaps, you know, we could, we could, uh, we could ask some more questions along the way to find out more detail. And then next is motives. And as I mentioned several weeks ago, motives is the most difficult one to address. But, but what, does, what does he want in what is going on? What what is he trying to accomplish? Okay, he wants he certainly wants the depression to get better. He'd love for all the problems to go away. Anything else? 
Okay? So it seems like his wife wants wants him to feel better, and she wants to know how to help. She wants to know how to, to, to help him, and um, so she seems to be trying to help him on his behalf when he's not wanting to help himself. And then finally, consequences. What is the result of what is going on? And what kind of consequences are coming as a result? It's what? Okay. Yeah, it kind of has a snowball effect a little bit, doesn't it? Um, could be straining his marriage. We don't know about that. Maybe those are some questions that we could ask. But certainly it's help, It's it's hindering his ability to to uh, do well at his job. And that's going to have uh, an adverse effect on his, his life as well. All right. So those are... The, certainly we could ask a lot more questions. Um, you know, maybe ask about some other things. Because... What we need to recognize is that depression is not confined. It's not compartmentalized to one area of life. It's not as if we can say, well, you know, he's depressed in that area, but he's probably really good, you know, handling things well in every other area of life. It usually usually, uh, affects every part of life. We've talked about it like going down a a hallway in a hotel room, and what we want to do is we want to ask about each part of their life. So let's talk about your job. We open up the door of the hotel room and actually they tend to open inward, don't they? So they, we open the door of the hotel room. We look in. We want to see what's in there. Okay, we close that one. Now we want to ask about their family. Open that door. See what's in there. And what we're looking for is commonalities. You know, I noticed when I went into the hotel room, I saw that every hotel room had a bed. So now we're starting to see a common theme. And so we want to do the same thing with him. We're asking questions about different areas of life. And you know, what I've noticed is that in every area of life, this is how you're dealing with this stress. And, and that will help us to, now when we, find, when we see that overall picture, kind of the commonalities, now we can go into the room, which is, you know, his, his depression. And we walk in, and now we want to examine things more carefully. And, and now we can say, well, based on what we're seeing in the other parts of the house, um, you know, we think here are some things that can help you. Um, so we want to ask a lot of questions, and, and we've talked about that before, so we won't uh, delve into that anymore today. We want to think about uh, his relationships at church, his relationships with his family. We want to think about where he finds hope in life. Obviously, uh, depression tends to be the opposite of hope, uh, and certainly we may want to ask some questions of his wife. All right, so now let's talk about the next aspect. So we have love. We want to come with the disposition of mercy and love. Then we want to not make assumptions. We want to know and then speak. Now we want to start speaking to him, encourage him. Um, Ephesians 4 says that we need to speak the truth in love. So now we want to start helping him see that, hey, listen, God has hope. God provides hope for people who are depressed. Psalm 56.3 says, When I am afraid, I will trust in you, God. First Peter 5.7, one that I've often used for people who are distressed, that I come into contact with is, Cast all your cares upon Him, for He cares for you. That is, that God cares for you. You need to turn to God in times of trouble, in times of distress. And so you want to, you want to counter His depressive thoughts with biblical promises. Counter his depressive thoughts with biblical promises. What has God promised to you? And help him walk through that. 
and then give him verses that he can reflect on and meditate on because our hope is not found in anything that this world has to offer. It is found in God and his only uh, help is going to be found in a God who is good and a God who cares and a God who is not far off and removed. Okay? When God created the world, He didn't just kind of set it in motion and say, have fun with that. You know, deal with all your problems. No, God created the world and His hands are still involved in everything. And God is in control of all things. And so remind Him about God's control, His goodness, and His care. And that God's purposes will finally come to bear. All right, then finally, do. Okay, the do aspect, love, no, speak. We want to speak the truth to Him. It's not enough for Him to hear the truth, though, right? He needs to actually do something about it because, as I've said, genuine change doesn't happen until genuine change has happened. And so we want to actually see Him move toward change. And so here are some recommendations that we can give to Him in order to move toward that change. First, see a doctor. Okay, it would be helpful in this situation because medical conditions can often contribute to greater amounts, uh, uh, greater depths of depression. So if there's something else going on, I wouldn't recommend that he sees a doctor and tells him, "Hey, listen, here's my symptom, or here, here's my symptoms." I would just do, a, I would just have him go and do a basic checkup. And um, obviously, the the main help that he's going to find is is going to be found in the Word of God, but. But obviously, those medical conditions can contribute to a a worsening depression. Secondly, he needs to learn to preach the gospel to himself. Because frankly, you can't be with with him every second of the day. His wife can't even be with him every second of the day. And so he needs to be able to hear from God real truth about God that's going to speak to his depression. And so he needs to be reminded about Psalm 42. Why are you downcast, O my soul? Why so depressed within me? Hope in God, for I will yet praise Him, for He is my help and my countenance. Right? Um, And so remind him to preach the gospel to himself, that God is more than enough. And then thirdly, I would say that that we need to, to lend him our faith. You know, when sorrow has overtaken a person who has just been distressed for such a long period of time, sometimes their faith is so weak that they can't even trust in God. And um, I'm reminded of this book that that, um, that my pastor gave me when about five or six years ago. It's called uh, Liberating Ministry from the Success Syndrome. It's written by a pastor, Kent Hughes, and his wife. Uh, when when this pastor, Pastor Hughes, actually went through a serious bout with depression. you believe that pastors can actually deal with, have to struggle with depression? He was uh, working through ministry. He had started a church. He's working 10 years, and he'd seen some good fruit, uh, some people being saved and discipled. But over time, what what happened is some of the churches in the area were starting to become more appealing. You know, there's all sorts of ways that you can be appealing to the the mass crowds. And so he was losing a lot of the people from his church to these other churches that had, you know, bigger bells and whistles. And um, so he, he came home one day just completely 
distressed. And uh, he said, those who really make it in ministry are those with exceptional gifts. He's trying to explain away why he can't make it as a pastor. If I had a great personality or natural charisma, if I had a celebrity status or a deep resonant voice, a merciless executive uh, ability, a domineering personality that doesn't mind sacrificing people for success, then I could make it to the top. But then he says, where is God in all this? And he's, as he's talking to his wife, he, he tried to get Barbara, his wife, to disprove him. He says, just look at all the preachers today, the great preachers. I mean, their success seems to have little to do with God's Spirit. They're just really superior people. Suddenly, he says, I found myself coming to a conclusion that I didn't want to admit. Though I knew it had been brooding in me for quite some time, now it was finally coming out. God has called me to do something He hasn't given me the gifts to accomplish. Therefore, God is not good. This is coming from a pastor who has been in ministry for 10 years and who has been preaching the Word of God to people. There, he said, finally I blurted out the thought that had tormented me. It fell between us, him and his wife, ugly and misshapen into the silence of the hot night I knew I had been called by God, that is, into ministry. I'd never been able to escape that call, nor did I want to. But now, I felt like I was the butt of a cruel joke. I was a failure. I wanted to quit. In an aching desperation to my dear wife, I said, what am I to do? And here's her very profound and wise response. She said, I don't know what you're going to do. But for right now, for tonight, hang on to my faith because I believe. I believe that God is good. And I do believe that He loves us and is going to work through this experience. So hang on to my faith because I have enough for both of us tonight. And the rest of the story is that Pastor Hughes did not abandon God. He turned back in faith to God. Praise God for His grace in that. But he used someone, a wife, who probably was in just as much distress as he was, but was handling it in a right way. You know, we need people like that around us. And sometimes it's not that we, you know, we lost our salvation, or maybe we were never saved. No, Christians actually have doubts at times. Is that hard to believe? No, Christians can doubt God's goodness and His favor. Read the story of Job. He asked the question, where is God in all this? And sometimes what we need is someone who can come along with a stronger faith in God than us at that time who can say, hey, just hang on to me for tonight. And and as people in need of change who are helping others in need of change, we want to be that kind of people, person for, for others in our church. We want to say when, when we see someone who is distressed, hey, I know you just lost your spouse. I know it's been a rough year. But hang on. Hang on tight. God is good. All right, so so we want to to love them 
We want to know what's going on. We want to speak truth to them. And we want to just help them. Just just carry them on to the next step. And obviously God is, is merciful and all that. And, and by the way, God is using you to do that sort of thing. We were never made to, to live in isolation as Christians. We were meant to be a part of a community, a larger group of believers who love us and who are willing to allow us, uh, uh, willing to make us accountable and uh, to push us on toward greater godliness. But, okay, said all that, we want to we help carry their load. Okay, Galatians 6 is a really helpful passage in this. It says in Galatians 6 to, you know, to carry your own load. You have responsibilities that, that, that have to be taken care of. Do as much as you can to make sure that you're carrying them so nobody else has to carry them. But, in the very first verse in Galatians 6, it says, Bear one another's burdens. Bear their loads. So, not only are you working to carry your burdens and not be a burden to someone else, but you're working to help carry someone else's. And, and that's what we want to do. We want to help carry someone else's load. But at the same time, we want to move them to a place where they can get to a place where they're carrying their load. Right now, they can't. They're in a difficult situation. And so we want to do kind of a gentle shove toward greater godliness. You know, you know, perhaps uh, you do this to your spouse in the morning when it's time for them to get up and you kick them out of bed or, you know, sometimes the girls, I'm um, waking them up in the morning. They're, they're really slow to get up. And so sometimes, especially when we're in a hurry, kind of pull them out of bed. Come on, you know, let's, let's get moving. Um, and so, so that's kind of what's going on. This person who's depressed, you need to give them a little push. Hey, listen, here's, here's what, we don't want to hammer them like, Get up, you know. No, we, we want to we want to give them a gentle and loving push. And and one of those one of the ways that we can do that is just making sure that Keith is attending church regularly. He needs to be hearing the word of God. What has he been hearing for the last several weeks? What has he been hearing? Himself, right? Because he's looking inward. And so he's listening to himself. And often our you know, we, we lie to ourselves with with Things that are not consistent with the scripture. So get him underneath the sounding of uh, the sound of God's word. Make sure that he's at church regularly. Get get him some food, obviously. Get him some rest. Um, help him to uh, to recognize the blessings in life. And then, of course, one of the most helpful things is just to pray with Keith and pray for Keith. You know, it is God's work that ultimately has to happen in his life. And your overall goal here is that to get Keith to focus the, the focus off of himself and recognize that he needs to seek to love God and to love others. And so help him to remind him of his identity in Christ and and then establish accountability. All right, any thoughts or questions? Jonathan. Yeah, kind of a non-confrontational approach to um, to helping him change instead of um, you know put getting him into a corner after service on Sunday or something. Instead, kind of go to a neutral ground or something where you're showing that you care for him, and then have opportunity. Someone else had a question, Vicky? Oh, Norm.
And that's consistent with the psalmist, what we were seeing there with, you know, hope in God, for I will yet praise Him. That's, that's where they need to get their focus. And uh, we, can't, we can't just rush in and say, hey, we see you're depressed. Hope we got to start with mercy and, and uh, listening to them. Vicki? All right, well, we need to be dismissed to the service, so thank you for your attention. Let me pray, and we'll be dismissed. Lord, thank you for your grace, and thank you for people who have come along our side when we were distressed and encouraged us and reminded us of the great hope that we have in God, in you, in Jesus Christ, who is our risen Savior. Lord, we know that the greatest struggles that we could ever face in this world do not compare to the great... uh, judgment that will come on those who defy you and who do not trust in Jesus Christ. And the greatest struggles that we have in this life are of little comparison to the great joy that we will we will enjoy in the next. So help us to have our our hope fixed in the proper place and help us to be people who are able and willing to help others who are in a place where they are distressed. We pray in Jesus name. Amen.